Welcome back to Body Talk with Bex. This week I get to interview a woman named Victoria who I actually know from when I was very little, although it's been a really long time since I've seen her. And we're talking about her experience as a mom. So stay tuned, we'll jump right in. It's a great interview and she has a lot of wonderful resources for anybody else who's in a similar situation. So make sure to check out the show notes. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your family and just kind of give us a little about you. Okay. Well, I have been, my husband and I've been married for 33 years and he is from an old Santa Cruz family, George H. Wilson. And we have two adult children, Carly, who's 29 and Elliot, who is 26. Oh, I love that. I didn't realize he was a G.H. Wilson. You betcha. <laughs> That's funny. As soon as you said that, I was like, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> and how do you know Gene? So from Vintage Faith Church, from First Presbyterian Church. Wow. Yeah. Yep, and you, she was you, my she was my masseuse. And boy, was she a great masseuse. She was good. Yeah. Do you still go to Vintage Faith or? I do not. No. Yeah. How about you? No, not the same. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I saw your email with your note that he was only recently diagnosed. Yes. So do you want to tell us, I guess, about his upbringing and things that you noticed? Sure. It's honestly, we didn't notice at first. I think parents, you know, they look at their babies and they see perfection. And it was the pediatrician who noticed and she got him dialed into the county special ed program when he was nine months old. So she just noticed that he wasn't making some of the fine motor landmarks that the doctors test for. And so he was nine months when his a couple, his preschool teacher, Candace Alaberti, would come to the house and do things with him, play on the floor, blow bubbles to help him with his speech. And then he started going to her preschool on the little yellow school bus when he was probably two years old. And it just went on from there. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's lucky you had someone looking out for you. Absolutely. We wow. have lots of people looking out for us. Good. <laughs> Good. So do you want to take us through, I guess, what what prompted you to go get him officially tested? So I guess I guess a good way to start is by saying that we it, we thought about diagnosis, but he was covered by our local regional center under a diagnosis of intellectual disability. And he we were able to get all of the services that we needed. And so for a very long time, a diagnosis just seemed like something that we didn't need. But it was recently he 
almost three years ago now went into crisis. And we that was when I decided that it was probably a good idea to get a diagnosis because we could see I we had always believed that he was autistic. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of Temple Grandin. We knew he was on the spectrum, but it seemed like a really good idea to make it official for the sake of of my nieces and nephews and my daughter and anybody in the family who was going to have children to understand the genetic history. And the crisis made us realize that there was something else going on, which was identified by the psychologist as bipolar. So that's his secondary diagnosis is bipolar. Mm-hmm. And he's now medicated and sees a therapist and is doing really, really well, is adjusting to, to who he is. Wow. I just got goosebumps listening to that. That's, that's not an easy combination Yes. And I think he was living with it. The The bipolar came up when he was about 17. And at the time, we didn't recognize it for what it was. And it just became more and more obvious. And, you know, actually, one of the many angels that we've worked with, Sissy at the Cali Project said, you know, he cries sometimes for no reason. And so she was thinking it was depression. But we also saw the cycles of very high anxiety. So again, we had people looking out for us as well. Yeah. Yeah. So can you take us through the process of what getting tested was like? I mean, I've heard what it's like to get tested when you're little. I'm wondering what the difference is between getting tested when you're a little bit older. It was fairly easy. And maybe that was because of COVID. Um, (laughs) A lot of it ended up being remote. But after the psychologist interviewed me, interviewed Elliot, interviewed some of his caregivers and wrote the report, he then said, well, I won't confirm this until I meet him in person. So toward the end of COVID, Elliot did go in and meet the psychologist. It was a pretty easy process, whereas when he was little, I think going over to Stanford and all that would have been much more complicated. So I'm kind of glad we waited. Yeah. And you didn't have to go too far to see the psychologist. You didn't have to go to Stanford. That's a great question because the psychologist (laughs) is in Aptos, but I do find consistently living in Santa Cruz that often the best resources are over the hill. Mm -hmm. He's got a new psychiatrist he's going to be seeing and she's over the hill. Yeah. Over the hill is generally where I've noticed the best care is as well for a lot of things. So it's really nice to hear that you had access to so many resources without having to get like a proper diagnosis first. There were a lot of struggles and they were based on his behaviors. Hmm. Elliot's main thing is his behaviors, which we can now attribute to anxiety. But when you're talking about a, a toddler who isn't even talking yet, that's just not a word that comes up. And so we were needing special education from the time he was, as you, as I said, nine months old, but also even in the severely handicapped classrooms, teachers weren't trained to deal with physical behaviors. They were physical behaviors and that continued to be true in his, in adult, in his adulthood. So 
along the way, there have just been these periods of tremendous difficulty where I've had to go out and look really hard for the right services or the right school. Um, and that's been that's been the most challenging part. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that seems to be a common theme with most resources out there for most any type of disorder really is that it's hard to find the right thing. And there's not just like an easy database that you can go to that lists all of the options. It's you have to go to your homework. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And what was it like for you as a parent to watch your kid go through the process of getting tested? Well, I know it, because, sorry, I know we've talked about the process, but like emotionally, well, at that point, how it was, was a that? tremendous relief. But but you did ask me earlier about what it was like when he was growing up. And it was it was really hard because and I think every parent has the 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 desire for their children to fit in. And it was easy when he was younger because other kids couldn't really tell. But once it became obvious, when the other kids surged way ahead of him developmentally, then I felt it, it was really difficult. I just felt sad and very protective over him. And that, that was challenging. Your mama bear instincts kicked in. <laughs> Did he ever feel or notice that distance and, and feel a certain way towards it? Or was he just kind of... I really think he did. I think that's what the behaviors, I think the behaviors w were a way of saying, I mean, I've heard you and I know somebody in common um, mm -hmm. who's, who's ADHD. And I remember the story of his wife saying that the first time that he got medicated, he said to her, oh, so this is how other people function. And so I think there was some sense inside Elliot that he was different and the behaviors were a way of trying to measure himself against others or, or, or sort of set himself up against others. And I've forgotten the question. No, that's okay. He just was, he was aware that he was different and measured himself to others. That's right. And when he was in middle school and we had to actually exit him out of the severely handicapped program, which is, that just shouldn't be in, in my opinion, but that's what we did. We found the Bay School, which is this amazing school in Santa Cruz. People come from as far away as San Francisco to bring their autistic kids to this school. And the Bay um, School, is that what you Bay said school. it was? Yes, in Santa Cruz. And when I brought him there to see the school, a photographer had taken a portrait of each student and framed it quite large, like life-size, and they were hanging on the walls and he was walking around looking at them. And that's when I saw my opening and told him that this was a school for children with disabilities. A lot of them were autistic. And then I explained to him what autism was and said that we thought that he was autistic and that he would fit right in in this school. And he, I think it was a real relief for him to hear that. So. Mm. And you, you can totally say no if you don't want to talk about it, but can you tell us why you decided to leave the other program and go to the Bay School? Oh, I can talk about it for sure. Um, <laughs> okay. 
it's that it's that something that we are still dealing with. Well, we're very he's in a really, really good place now. But but it's the it's the same issue of teachers trained in physical behaviors. They were not in the severely handicapped classes. And we had we had this one teacher named Robin Ross, who was just an angel. And she understood the physicality of these kids. And she was very physical with them and had them on, uh, you know, those balls you use in Pilates. They would sit on those instead of chairs. She just did all those things that helped them to be centered. And she was amazing. But after she moved away, then we were kind of starting over. And, and it was mutually agreed between us and the public school system that we needed to find alternative education for him. Wow. Yeah. That That's was really too hard. bad. And, and so after diagnosis, what were the major steps that came next? Well, the diagnosis came out of, as I said, the, the crisis that happened a few years ago. We he was at the base school for eight years, eight really good years. And the goal was always to help him to be independent to his the best of his ability. And that's where Sissy from the Cali Project came in. When he graduated from the base school, she worked with him and taught him how to take the bus and how to do his shopping and just all kinds of things. And he actually got to the Cali Project brings special needs adults into the house for three nights a week of spending the night and basically being in this atmosphere where they can learn independent skills. And he did that and he graduated from that and he had so many great skills. And then his anxiety overtook him and he, he had to come back from a, a part in a section eight apartment back to our house. And that was really difficult. Yeah, I think any young adult can relate to when you go into crisis and you have to return home to mom and dad, it's, it's a hard time. And it was, it was really rough. And that was when I spent the longest I've ever spent looking for something and his behaviors were still pretty bad. And I had to, we had, when he was 17, we'd put locks on the doors in our house. So lock on the bedroom door, lock on my office door so that we could, if I needed to be doing something, I could be in there and know that he wasn't going to come and, and I would be safe. And I spent about a year behind a locked door in my office, calling people and begging them, you know, do you have something we need help? He was going to the, the county behavioral health here in Santa Cruz. And we had a really good psychiatrist. Her name was Dr. Lee. And that was, that was a really good, but it's, it's very difficult to get those kinds of services. As we all know from seeing all the people on the streets of Santa Cruz who have no care. Um, but we did have that until finally, after a year, we were able to place him in a crisis home through our local regional center. It, it didn't come automatically. There were a lot of steps, a lot of kind of false starts. It was it was a, a bad year, but eventually ended up with in this home with another wonderful agency called Summit Therapeutic Services. And I can't say enough about Summit. And what makes Summit unique is that they train all of their staff in what's called Ukiru. And um, Ukiru is, well, you use these pads, but it's there's also CPI, which is safe holds on people who are being physical. But 
even those two things are not primary. Primary is redirecting. Um, so it's, 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 it's hands-on training, but it's really as much hands-off as possible. It, there's a great deal of respect that goes into learning those practices and a great deal of respect for the special needs adults who need them. And he's, he's been in, he was in the crisis home for 18 months. It was really, it was in Hollister, which is nice and close, but it still was the farthest away we'd ever been from him. And that was really hard, but it was also, I call it his going away to college experience because he had to learn to live with other people, which he does not like. That is not the kind of uh, lifestyle that's going to work for him. And he had to do it. And he had, as I say, a psychiatrist and a therapist who've helped him tremendously. And the, the staff is all trained in helping him deal with his coping mechanisms. So he knows when things get a little, he has three roommates, when things get a little crazy in the house, he can retreat to his room and that's his safe space. And he can do breathing exercises. They're just, there are all these steps that, that they use to help him calm himself. And basically, and that's, he was in the crisis home for 18 months and then he went to a second transitional placement where he is now. And then he's coming back to Santa Cruz. But in those two years, he's gone from when he gets really anxious and he gets wound up taking hours to recover or sometimes days to moments he can be amped up and retreat to a safe space and get calmed down pretty easily. And when I talk to him on the phone, which I try to do as often as possible, I can feel when I'm talking to him that he is listening and he'll say to me things like, I understand. And it's, it's really amazing as a parent to witness maturation. I think there's so much maturation that goes on in young adults whether they're typical or atypical. And, and I have seen that with him the last two years and it's been, it's just been amazing. So that's incredible growth. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you said that you used to lock yourself in your office. Yes. To stay safe. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's it started. It started when he was 17 years old. He's always been my buddy. And we've gone, I mean, we've traveled with him to Mexico and Canada. And he and I flew across the United States and drove up the East Coast and then drove across the state of Massachusetts and never had any incidents. And then I think at age 17, he started separating. And his way of separating is a little different from other kids. So I just remember one time after school when he kind of came at me and I had to pin him to the ground. And thank God I'd watched my daughter in Taekwondo class do grappling because it was like (laughs) I knew how to put my body. And I just had to stay there on top of him until he calmed down enough that I could escort him to his room. We'd gotten the contractor to put locks on the doors. And he'd go calm down in his room. And once he was calmed down, then he could come out. Yeah, it was pretty intense. Any agency that deals with special needs adults cannot use locks on doors. But we as parents had that luxury and it was a lifesaver. I mean, really. So. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine as a parent the feeling that would be like to have to experience that with your kid, you know, the physicality of that. It was uh, pretty traumatizing, though. There were days where I just would have to 
say to myself when I went to bed, well, if I sleep tonight, I'll wake up ready to face a new day. And that's basically was the strategy for during the difficult times. And we had a tremendous amount of support. The head of school at the base school is a psych- psychologist. And she always had amazing insight into her students. And if I was ever really feeling discouraged by anything that was happening in school or just with him personally, I could call her and make an appointment and talk. And that they, they were just very supportive. The director of education was as well. They were very supportive, not to mention the kinds of things that they would do with their students. So he he's had a lot of blood tests in his life. We've tr- we, there were many years of trying to figure out what was going on with him, where we would use that resource. And he was, we were working on his GI issues, which weren't extreme, but, you know, we were just helping him with a naturopath who was very good, a medical doctor who's a naturopath, helping him with his stomach issues. And we, we did 15, we did something like 12 blood draws in one day and getting him to that appointment was, as you can imagine, difficult. And, but the Bay school, he got violent and the Bay school came in the van pulled up to the medical center, the sliding door slid open and these three women from the school came out. I called them the mod squad and just (laughs) grabbed him and, you know, and escorted him back to school. And then the next time we needed to take blood tests, we just took a teacher with us and then he was fine. But they, I mean, that's the kind of support they offered. That's, that doesn't happen in most schools. Yeah. not, Not in the public school, not even in a severely handicapped classroom. You can't get that kind of behavioral support and that's what he that's what he needs so that's incredible yeah making me emotional over here (laughs) so he's not living at home then yeah you know I would say there comes a point in every parent and offspring's life where you mutually agree you don't want to do that anymore (laughs) and he reached that point at the Cali project So when he had to come back home from the Cali project, he wasn't any happier about it than we were. So I have to admit that during that year that I was looking for something, any kind of help, my husband Blue and I were pretty much done. And I was looking for a residential placement for him Mm -hmm. and begging for one, really. But once I found Summit Therapeutic Services and they took him in and I had time to breathe and Blue had time to breathe, we were able to grow our relationship with him and to actually miss him. And, and, and that was really good for all of us as a family, because there was so much anger and burnout and we were able to overcome that. And again, that's because of the support we were getting. If we'd were on our own, we wouldn't have been able to do it. So by the time the regional center offered me a permanent residential placement, I went and looked at it and said, no, you know, it just, he would have basically ceased to thrive. You know, thanks to the Cali project, he, for him, independence meant taking the bus to Trader Joe's and getting his groceries or going to a concert at night or going to jam. He loves to play the guitar, going to jam, you know, in a band or something. And it would have been very difficult to have any independence in a residential placement. And I said, no, and they were shocked. Wow. We just, by then we had a different plan. We found a way to bring him back. And we, he, we kept his section eight voucher active, which is really hard to do. 
So he has a voucher and he has a, a house and we're building an ADU for overnight caregivers. And we're working with a really good supported living agency called Imagine Supported Living. They are wonderful. And we're doing something called self-determination. And self-determination is it's something that was started, I think, by DDS, the Development, California Department of Developmental Services. It's, it's a way of parent of the parent or conservator basically deciding what services the special needs adults needs and setting those up and using an outside financial agency to pay the staff. It's just sort of a way of being a little bit independent from the regional center. So we're doing that. But really, the key piece is Summit. Because imagine supporting living, supported living doesn't train staff in physical behaviors, but but has agreed because of self-determination, that's the key, because of self-determination has agreed to help us if Summit will train the staff. <laughs> and that's very exciting. So yeah. he's going to come back either at the end of this year or the beginning of, of 2023. And he's really excited. And so are we. That's great. That's a wonderful place to be in. Yeah. So did you ever feel stigmatized as a mother because of him? I I didn't. I think it, it goes back to what I was saying about how you just don't want your kids ever to be left out. And those were really the strongest emotions that I had over it were seeing him not fitting in that was really painful but i didn't personally feel anything other than just a very strong desire to help him to be successful and independent cuz he's a great guy he has a really great sense of humor he loves music he loves to dance he he charms people which thank god cuz he's <laughs> he's he's a pain in the neck so the fact that people like him makes all the difference in the world so yeah and it sounds like he's he's really learning how to support himself and and really learning to be kind of higher functioning. I mean, enough to be on his own and not at home with you. Yes, I think he has. He's he's always been fu- higher functioning in the sense that he's ambulatory and he has language. But I have to tell you, we worked really hard at that language. I mean, when the when Candace would come to our house and blow bubbles with him, that was for the purpose of, of eliciting speech. And finally, when he was in at the base school and he was a teenager, we shifted from speech therapy to to speech therapy to generate uh, deeper emotions. So we switched from, you know, worrying about his speech and his enunciation to getting him to articulate feelings which was really cool. And that has helped tremendously, but it's been, you know, since he was tiny working with him first in, you know, physical speech therapy, and then later in helping him to learn how to write and read at a basic level. He's definitely intellectually challenged, but one of the reasons I wanted him to go to the base school is because I knew he would learn to read and write and do math at a basic level. And he would have loved it if he could have used his behaviors to not have to do any, any schoolwork. <laughs> and that just wasn't okay with us. So he, he, 
I can't remember what the question was, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Will he be able to work a job? Oh, that's right. You were talking about higher functioning. What impedes Elliot is his anxiety. That is straight up really all it is. Yeah, so it sounds like he has all the right skills. I mean, yes, he's lazy. He can't do anything for more than five minutes without saying, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. But anxiety is what impedes it. And so I used to dream about him having a part-time job and I still do. But now I'm thinking maybe ultimately after he gets settled where he is, uh, maybe a few hours of volunteer work somewhere. But for starters, just your basic life skills, just getting up and either going to the grocery store or cleaning the bathroom or, you know, pulling some weeds. There's always going to be something to do. He has to take care of his house. So I think at first that is plenty for him. Yeah. And how how far away is his house from where you are? Like a 15 minute, 10 minute bike ride. We're midtown. He's a west side. It's really, really nice. Far enough so that you have your space, but close enough you can check on it. <laughs> Yeah. You know, when we were looking for a place for him to live, I thought he does not want to live up or down the block from us. That would that would probably traumatize him, you know, so (laughs) it's really good. He has his own neighborhood. That's good. And how did this affect your family as a whole, short term and long term? It's been tremendously challenging. I would say the person most affected is his sister. From the time he could walk, he would. she was three years old, he would walk into her room and grab a big fistful of hair and pull until she started to cry. Oh. And so she was traumatized. And um, that's a really tough way to grow up with a brother. And I, I can honestly say that even though he always looked up to her and so many of the things he did in life were because she did them. Surfing, Taekwondo, baseball. He did those things because Carly did them. Music, playing guitar. She's a drummer. And he he wanted to be a musician like his sister. So she was a tremendously good influence on him. But it was tough. And I really think that it's the, the healing that's happened in the last two years and the recovery time we've been able to have have been especially positive on her relationship with him. And I still think... It's more challenging. He doesn't particularly like to talk. He'll talk to me on the phone, which is great because I ask him a lot of questions and I make him dig deep and he he doesn't like it, but he does it. And he tends to talk a lot shorter with his sister and his dad and that bums them out. But it doesn't mean he doesn't love them. It just, he's just not really, um, he's, he is difficult to cultivate a relationship with him. Socializing is a major challenge for people on the spectrum and he is, he is no exception. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, as you just stated, that's a general challenge for anyone on the spectrum. So, and did she ever have to help out with him in any way? <laughs> you know, it's funny when we would go on date night, we used to hire a babysitter and we had some great babysitters, but at some point we realized that Carly was better than any of them. She was 13 then. And I just remember that was the point at which we started paying her. And we said, you know what? We would be paying a babysitter and you're better than they are. So we're going to pay you. And so she became the babysitter when we went on date night. And she she did, she, not only did she do great, but I think there were a couple of times when we went out of town, maybe for a day or two, once they were both older, 
where she helped out in that regard as well. That's nice. You're still able to go do fun things, just you and your husband <laughs> without yeah. the kids tagging along. <laughs> yeah. You know, Blue likes to say Elliot's great 90% of the time. It's that 10% of the time. And it kind of came in waves. There were times when we didn't have to worry about behaviors and other times when they ramped up. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there were some there were some family vacations that went sideways. I can tell you that. I really like that saying, what did you say? He's great. 90% of the time, 10% of the time is the problem. And it, it, the behaviors come in waves. I love that. I'm writing that down. That's really fun. Do you mind sharing with us just some of the struggles that you did experience on family vacations. I think it's always kind of a good idea for other families and listeners to kind of understand the struggles that you have to go through. Yeah. Well, his sister went to, she's a surfer and she went to, she graduated from a small school on the West side of Oahu university of Hawaii, uh, West Oahu. And we went, over as a family for her vacate for her graduation. And I had told Elliot, cause we had caregivers that would have come and stayed with him. And I told him that he did not have to come. When I asked him many times to consider staying home if he wanted to, he, I, he was welcome to come, but he needed to really think about whether or not he wanted to. And the week before he said he did want to come. And we said, okay. And the problem started in the airport. And I think it was probably panic. (laughs) Airports aren't really comfortable for a lot of people, much less somebody like Elliot. So he ended up, we ended up somebody, there are just all these angels that appear out of nowhere. And I remember we were struggling with him and he was, uh, I think, trying to punch his dad. Somebody came out of nowhere and said, somebody who worked for the airlines, may I help you? Do you need some help? And, and I said, yes, he's autistic and, and we, we have to get him on the plane. And so she was able to escort him on the plane. And just this calm presence, it calmed him down. And he was pretty good on most of the trip, but I don't know what it was. We took him to Hawaii a few times. And when he was little, he did great. But the two subsequent trips, it caused some great anxiety for him for whatever reason. And he stopped enjoying the things over there that he would do at home, like going to the beach. It was just, I'm not sure what was going on, but he sat through Carly's whole graduation. He was an angel through the whole thing. It was hours long. And then it was on a hike. He just, I don't know what happened. He just, something flipped. And it was at that point that we decided that going on, vacations with him was something we needed to put on pause and we did and don't think flying with him is something we're going to do anytime soon but he and I have talked about it a lot and I've said to him that we can start with something small like if we go somewhere that's just a few hours from home he could come with his staff in a separate car, there'd be two staff people in the car with them or something. We can work all that out. And he could stay for a couple of days and have that vacation that we all need, but in a way where we get help and we can make it successful for him. And then, you know, maybe over time, 
I'm hoping that he continues to mature because if he does the way he is now, I think that there could come a day when these behaviors will be something he just will be behind us. I really do believe that we're not there yet, but it is entirely possible. Yeah. Well, and at the rate that he's been maturing at recently too, I mean, it's right around the corner, hopefully. (laughs) We will see. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I know those aren't easy memories to pull upon and think about, but I do love that he was able to sit through her graduation ceremony though. Yeah. It's random, right? You just, you just, you never know what sets people off. So, yeah, I just find that really sweet. Like he knew it was an important moment for her and he was there to support her and very, very sweet. So he's currently with Summit. Yes. And when is he coming back? He said beginning of next year, hopefully. End, end of this year or beginning of next year, yes. And We're getting does, ready. Yeah. And does he have anything else lined up after that? I mean, working well, with Imagine Supportive Living, right? Yeah, the, the, the staff will be provided by Imagine Supportive Living and the training by summit we're setting them up for life, which is a really, it's, it's a really exciting thing to be able to say. And there have been false starts, but I think the psychiatrist and the, the staff that's trained in physical behaviors, those are the safety nets that weren't there before. And I think also maybe even more important is his experiencing what it's like to be out of your comfort zone, to be, I mean, Santa Cruz is a pretty nice place to live. And, you know, mom and dad's house, the food's good. He experienced what it's like to be somewhere that's less comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that perspective will help him to appreciate. I mean, he's already excited. He, I think he understands what a gift it is that he gets to come back to this, you know, his own sweet spot. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's a good spot to be stuck in if you have to get stuck here. <laughs> Are there any other resources that you haven't mentioned yet that you would suggest for other parents that need help? We've talked about the Bay School, the Cali Project, we've talked about the County Behavioral Health, Imagine Supportive Living, and then the Summit Therapeutic Services. Uh, I would say just because right now we work very closely with the Cali project, I would say that the community foundation seems like a really good resource for people, not just special, not just agencies that deal with special needs adults, but, um, but uh, various, various nonprofits, the community foundation has just been really helpful to the Cali project. So that seems like a good one to, to bring up. Okay. Yeah, I just like to collect resources and post them up so that there's some place, hopefully, that they can be found. <laughs> yes. Oh, um, balance for kids. It's, oh, it's uh, it's called. It has a different name now. That's a really important one. They they helped us many for many years with a lot of his social stuff when he was growing up, and its name is. I think it's balanced Santa Cruz County. I think that's what it's called. 
balance balance yeah like okay. like balance on a balance bar yes it's balance santa cruz county okay or balance four kids with the number four what would be your advice to a parent who's struggling with a similar thing i just think you can't do it without talking to other people i think more than anything i've been connected to other families and other people and other agencies and you just you cannot do it alone and i do think that there are families of special needs kids who i remember the the the, the medical doctor is a naturopath that i mentioned he said to me one time parents wait too long before they reach out for help i think that's really common in the special needs community and parents get used to carrying the whole thing and it's really heavy load and there are so many angels out there who are willing to help and i i've loved all the help i've gotten and i'm really happy that we're not doing it by ourselves so i think you brought up a good point that parents do wait a lot of times and not just in in this you know arena but in other medical issues as well, they tend to wait and think, oh, I can handle it. I can handle it. And they kind of wait until they're at the breaking point and you don't have to get to the breaking point. That's, that's so much harder on you as the parent too. And as we can clearly see from my list of resources, there are people out there that want to help. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have any other stories that you want to share with us about Elliot? I don't know. You've asked some pretty good questions. <laughs> Thank you. I guess just, um, I, I do. I have one last one. The way that you and I connected was uh, at what was called First Presbyterian Church. And <laughs> he was an infant in my arms. I just remember being in that church with him in my arms. And that was where he was raised. And that was the beginning of my learning about what it means to be in community with other people and raise your children with other people. You're not doing it alone. That was a a pretty powerful thing to have happen in a church. So, yeah. And getting support. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your experience, your resources, telling us about the difficult memories and also some good ones. (laughs) Thank you, Becky. It's been an honor. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Body Talk with Bex. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts at. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button as well. Also consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. I am looking for new ways in which to reward people for signing up for Patreon. If you have any suggestions on things that you would like to see, please feel free to drop me a message. If you would like to share your own story or know somebody else who does, I can be contacted through my website, www.bodytalkwithbex.com or on social media. And don't forget, there was a ton of wonderful resources mentioned in this episode today. So definitely check out the show notes and I'm working on updating my resources page on the website as well. Thanks for listening.